Anyway, we are going to be continuing our study of Mark's Gospel. And this morning, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 8. And we're going to be reading uh, verses 31 through to chapter 9, verse 1 as well. Um, you know, I just love your style here at King's Wells. You know, you've got the, the Bibles at hand. You, know, you need a Bible monitor. It's just so cool. Yeah, so please avail yourself and have one if you've not brought one with you. Let me just check. Do you get to keep them? All right, okay. So, yeah, just as generous as us then. <laughs> okay. Let's all right, anyway, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 8 and uh, reading verses 31 through to 9. I think it's also going to come up on screen as well. And it reads this. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words and this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. Amen. You know, I was originally going to call um, this sermon, this passage, this reflection, who do you say I am? But then I discovered last night that Jude already used that title. But then it caused me to think, well, wait a minute. Just in reflection of this passage, maybe a more appropriate title would be A Cross for a Cross. But I do want to start by asking the question, who do you say I am? That was, that was the, the question that Jesus had put to Peter just earlier uh, in this passage. But though it was addressed to Peter, we know it is ultimately a question that's addressed to each and every one of us. Who do you say he is? Who is the Son of Man to you? Who is this man Jesus to you? What do you think of him? Do you love him? Have you committed yourself to him? Are you in love with him? Have you pledged your life to him in every aspect of your being in life, have you pledged it to him? You know, it's good to ask this question again, following what Jesus has just said. You know, this passage, as I already said already, it's a continuation of the conversation that Jesus has been having with his disciples when 
Peter has this revelation. You are the Messiah. But you'll notice immediately on this revelation, Jesus goes on to explain who he is and why he's come. It's funny, isn't it? Immediately. I mean, up to now, Jesus has been somewhat a bit coy about his true identity, what he's all about. But on this revelation, he knows like the cat's out of the bag, and right, I'm going to tell you everything. Because we've seen that Jesus has been very deliberate. He's gone to length to keep his identity quiet. Certainly he's silenced the demonic from heralding his arrival and who he is. So why is it now? Why, why Jesus, now are you, you know, unveiling everything? Why are you telling us what you're all about? Why, why have you saved it to now? Well, I think it was to avoid, if you might want to call it a catastrophic misunderstanding or misinterpretation. You know, misunderstandings, misinterpretations can have serious consequences sometimes. Sometimes funny ones as well. You know, as I was looking at this, I was, I'd, I'd read about uh, Jimmy Carter, uh, you know, former president of America. And, uh, well, he suffered to some degree of misunderstanding and misinterpretation on a trip to Poland. It wasn't his fault. It was his interpreter's fault. But whatever he'd sought to achieve by this visit, it came about as a bit of a farce. And actually, in the end, it, it came in a away as a bit of a comedy character. What had happened was that as he spoke in, in, um, in speeches and so on, he was misquoted and misinterpreted on several occasions. Let me just share a couple of things that he said. He said he wished to know the Polish people's desires for the future. What his interpreter had shared with the Polish media and the public was that he carnally desired the people of Poland. It gets worse. He said that he just left the United States that morning. What was said to the Polish people was, I've left the United States never to return. And this one tops it all. He innocently said he was happy to be in Poland. What his interpreter said was, he was happy to grasp Poland's private parts. You know, Messiah, it was a loaded term, and there had been much misinterpretation, misconception as to what the Messiah was going to be all about. You know, between the Old Testament and New Testament, intertestamental period, there had been a lot of extra biblical literature, and even I would say propaganda as to what the Messiah, what he was going to be all about, what was his mission, what was his purpose? And it was seized upon, despite anything that the Bible might say, it was seized upon, it was taken a very nationalistic, uh, very narrow-minded expectation. It was driven by a resentment, a bitterness towards the world powers. You know, we know from Israel's history that they'd suffered successively again and again under successive regimes. Gentile powers coming in, taking over the land, deporting them, bringing them back, and just ruling over them and being generally horrible. And what had cultivated in that period was our mindset in the nation. That when the Messiah comes, it's going to be different. It's going to be our turn to rule. It's going to be our turn to oppress. It will be our turn to destroy. 
for all the years that we have suffered. You know, in that brief summary, it paints a very different poetry from the one we know of Jesus. And I think that's the reason why Jesus immediately steps in to begin to deconstruct that expectation in Peter. And certainly for the rest of the disciples as well. Because they've been carrying this hope for years and years and years. It's been their, their, their heritage in some sense. You know, Jesus could have taught them plainly on any number of subjects or ideals or topics surrounding the Messiah. But it's interesting that he chooses to teach them this plainly. That the Son of Man must be rejected. He must die and be resurrected. You know, in a sense, I think it's because these are the fundamentals as to who Jesus is and what he's all about. You know, as John the Baptist had confessed right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And I don't think even John fully comprehended those words. He didn't fully understand those words that had been given to him as a revelation. But the only thing, if we understood anything today, it should be this, that Jesus came to die for you. To take your place on a cross. To die a sinner's death on a cross so that you and I might live. And as he is raised back to life, so might we by our faith and trust in him. You know, we can disagree about all sorts of different matters in Scripture and the Bible, but in this matter, Jesus is plain and clear. Christ died for you. It's a very humbling thing. And it takes, changes the whole picture altogether. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. There's no ambiguity in this. And Jesus doesn't want there to be. He came to redeem the whole earth, not just to satisfy the cravings for revenge and a Middle Eastern power struggle. Jesus had indeed come to rescue his people, but not in a political sense. Rather than a life transforming, a universal transformation towards an eternal rescue that will extend to all the families of earth. You know, that's an even grander vision that only God could bring about. And for us, you know, the work, in a sense, has already been done. Christ's work on the cross, and he calls to you and me. He says, come, come and follow me, and I will lead you into eternal life. Do you want that? Do you want that? To know him. You know, maybe you've come here today with questions. Or maybe even an aching. I want to know him more. His love and his forgiveness. And he's always imminent. And he's just looking for you to say, yes. I want it. I don't know if everyone here is in a position where you can say, yeah, I've submitted to Christ. Maybe there's some of you here still wrestling with that decision. Or you're still, I'm not sure. He's committed to you. 
He wants to take you in eternal life. Not a half-life. Eternal life. So maybe in the course of this morning, you've reached a, a decision point. You say, yeah, I'm ready. I'm ready, Lord. I can assure you it'll be the best decision you ever made in your life. Going back to the people, though, I mean, you can understand why this mindset had taken root in the nation's mind, but ultimately it's misguided. It was dangerous, and it falls short of God's purposes and plans for the whole world. And it, even amongst these disciples, if they proceed, continue with this, it, it threatens to derail everything that Jesus is planning and his purpose you know, Peter's reacting to Jesus' plain teaching just shows how entrenched this thinking was in the minds of the disciples. He's just confessed that Jesus is the Messiah, <laughs> but yet he thinks nothing of dictating to Jesus what he thinks he should be doing. It's ridiculous, isn't it? But then it raises a question for us as well. Who is Jesus to you then? Is he master or is he a meal ticket? You know, Peter's attitude portrays something of these underlying convictions and hopes he has tied up with Jesus. Is Jesus really first and foremost in his life? Or is Jesus just the means to an end? Obviously, Peter first saw in Jesus the means of national liberation. He wasn't looking for sanctification. He was looking for the massacre of the nations. His desires were ultimately selfish. But then how often have we piggybacked on the purposes of God to fulfill our own little agendas or plans in life? You know, when we come to Christ, we should find ourselves sifting almost like the motivations in us. Why do you love him? Why, why have you claimed allegiance to Jesus? What compels you to identify yourself as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus? Because you have to be sure that it's founded upon pursuing Jesus first and foremost. I encourage you this morning, put Christ first. Love Christ for who he is. Even eternal life. Jesus said himself, what, now this is what eternal life is, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That is eternal life. It's all in the person of Jesus. To know him. That we should know him. To love him with all our heart, mind and strength. To commit our will, our purposes, our plans, everything to him. Because you see, if our commitment is to anything less than that, it will fall and it will falter, it will fail. This is in part why Jesus is so abrupt with Peter. It's like, snap out of it, Peter. And you know, this false premise that you're on, this isn't going to go the way you want. And whatever else you intend by your words to me, it does my cause and mission no favors. He even says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Seems a bit strong, doesn't it? A bit severe. Was it really necessary to say that to Peter Jesus? I wonder 
I mean, I only realized it myself when I was reflecting this passage, but has it ever occurred to you that Jesus has been carrying this cross for a long, long time? It wasn't like the idea just suddenly dawned upon him towards the end of his ministry, saying, oh, the opinion polls are going a bit wonky here, I think. He knew it was coming. That's why he came. It's one thing to give your life in a flash, kind of have a go hero moment. But to live a life, a full life, but yet knowing at the end of it, it's going to lead to inevitable death. A brutal and a horrible one at that. How many of us would choose to stay the course if we knew that's what was ahead of us? Wouldn't it naturally rise up in us again and again saying, goodness, there must be some other way. And to hear the words from somebody you consider a friend saying, oh, you can't do this. It was just as potent as the occasion when he was in the desert when Satan tested him and tried to derail his plans and his commitment to fulfilling the purposes of God. It's fit for thought, isn't it? Can you imagine what Jesus must have felt like in that moment? What he might have been experiencing? You know, if you're serious about following Jesus, you will. Or maybe you even have in your Christian walk already. Because I want to say to you this morning, if you're pursuing Jesus, you need to expect a cross. You know, Jesus was carrying a cross big enough to rescue the whole world. And as his followers, we are called to follow after his pattern, if you like. Therefore, we each have a type of cross. It's a little cross compared to his, but it's a cross nonetheless. And it comes in all different shapes and sizes and on different occasions. And it presents itself every time when we come to a, a crisis point where we have to choose between either obeying the Father or going the way of the world. You know, I remember... It was, it was actually within a week uh, becoming a Christian when I made my commitment to Billy Graham because I was at college at the time uh, studying uh, graphic design. And that same week as I went back, there was a girl uh, in the, on the course in the studio who got into tarot cards. I don't know how where I became aware of this, but certainly following becoming a follower of Christ, it suddenly dawned on me. I thought, oh my goodness. Lord, what am I meant to do here? And I was faced with a decision. Do you know I just say, nothing to do with me? But then I was convicted. Do I choose the way of the world and just ignore it and say, that's that's hard business. But yet the cross we're called to carry is one of obedience, but it's also one of love. Love for God, but love for wider humanity, if you like. I said, Lord, is not another way? Couldn't somebody else challenge her <laughs> or speak to her? He says, well, if you love them, what are you going to do about it? I thought, oh, Lord. I remember hiding in the bathroom, <laughs> hiding in the toilets and constantly going, Lord, please let somebody else do it. But it was for me. I remember I had my wee pamphlet on the dangers of the occult. And I said, I said, I can't remember her name, but I say it was Linda. I say, Linda, I don't see a 
kind of getting into using tarot cards and that, if you know, but they're kind of dangerous and, you know, they just be going to sort of dark places that you don't want to be in. Would you just consider maybe reading this? I thought I did it really well. I'm like, man, the venom, they get spat back at me. How dare you speak to me like this? My father's a church of Scotland elder. You make this big scene. And the student, I thought, is this what it's going to be like? That's where it is to carry a cross on occasion. For some of us, it may feel like we're carrying a cross perpetually every day, every day, every day. For some of us, it just appears for a season. But that's the way it is. Whenever you choose to obey the Father as opposed to go the way of the world, it's going to be a cross. You know, when God calls us to be faithful, to be obedient, to be honest, to be upright in hell, we deal with situations and temptations that arise in life. It's a choice to go the way of the world or the way of Christ. If you choose the world, you're forefoot in the way of Christ. If you choose the way of Jesus, you're choosing the way of the cross. You see, because the, the cross is the rejection. It's the displeasure of the world. Because you stand not out of principle, but out of obedience and solidarity with the one that you now belong to. So on occasion, the world will take a dislike to you at times. And it will seek to crucify you because you don't agree with it. It might appear in the workplace. You know, if you know of this fraudulent activity going on in the workplace, and but you keep a head down and say, well, it's nothing to do with me. That's the way of the world. If you see bullying, if you see discrimination, but you say, well, it's nothing to do with me. That's the way of the world. When you choose to forgo the, if you want to call the moral opportunities that we're presented with these days, whether to watch or participate, whether online, TV, or even some of the clubs in Aberdeen, you know, when it seems that everyone else that you know celebrates them and even ribs you for not taking part, or even takes offense because of your non-participation, that's the way of the cross. You know, when you're snubbed or avoided by family or friends because you talk about Jesus too much, that's the way of the cross. When you experience pressure to conform to a particular ideology or the new morality, and you resist it and find yourself facing condemnation, critique, or even disciplinary action, that's what it is to carry a cross. You know, for some of our Christian brothers and sisters in other parts of the world, their cross is a literal cross. And many of people have suffered and died for their faith. I don't think it would surprise you if I told you that even today, that those who profess Jesus as Lord are still the largest persecuted religious group in the world. Yet in some sense it shouldn't surprise us. Because Jesus was always up front about the cost of following. You know, I've always said he'd never make a great second-hand car salesman. Because <laughs> he always told it like it what, it was, what it was and how it still is. You know what Jesus said in John 15? Let me read it to you. Jesus said this. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. 
That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will be yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. You know, your eternal destiny is important to Jesus. That's why he endured the cross. To redeem your immortal soul. To buy you back from death. That's how much he considers you of worth. You know, and we would all think it a tragedy if a priceless treasure was lost or stolen or sold for less than it's worth. And you know, in the Old Testament, there's a perfect illustration of this. You know, Jacob's older brother Esau, he was in an enviable position. He was the firstborn. The birthright was his. Everything that was his father's would have been his. All the privileges, all the blessings, they would have been his. But he sold them for a price. A pot of stew. It was only on the eve of his father's death that he realized the tragedy of what he had done. And no amount of tears could buy it back. He was forever resigned to serving the younger because of his reckless stupidity and his want for now. You know, we've got to have an eternal perspective on life. And I want to encourage you this morning, Jesus is worth it. He's so worth it. You know, in Jesus, we have blessings now. But you know what? They're just appetizers of what we shall enter into when he comes and returns in glory. You know, throughout Jesus' ministry, he's often used this, this title, the Son of Man, to refer to himself. And he's kind of got away with it because it was a bit of an ambiguous term. But in the book of Daniel, in chapter 7, it, it's suggestive of a, a divine person who will reign with glory and power and his and he will come. In fact, the words that Jesus uses here is almost a bit reflective of those words. But it's also used as just a generic term to describe any person. The lovely thing is, Jesus is indeed both. And he's making a promise to his disciples here and now. In fact, then and now, that our future is secure in him. If we stay the course. You know, when Jesus was true to his words... When he said to them, some of you here will not taste death before you see the kingdom come in glory. He was referring to his resurrection. And the resurrection itself was that absolute breakthrough of God coming in power. But it also served as a guarantee to them, but also to us. Stay the path because he is coming back. I wonder if any of you can remember, uh, I think it was in the 80s, the Clive James talk show. And he used to preview this Japanese game show, I think it was called Endurance, whereby the contestants used to endure the most horrible, torturous trials. You know, if you got through one week, you only you had to go back the next and continue it through and through until you got to the final. It was horrible. I'm sure they'd probably get sued or fined for the things that they, they put these people through. But yet they did it. And the, the strange thing was, do you know what the prize was at the end? It was a paper laurel wreath. And a cigar. It was, it, was, it was ridiculous. 
Jesus is worth so much more. And his riches and the plans and the rewards that he has in store for us are so much more. You know, if Jesus was willing to give his all for you, is he not worthy of the same? You know, to put things into perspective, I want to share with you a revelation that David Parker, he's a theologian, but he's also a vineyard pastor, and he shared this. He said, For some time I found myself making these excruciating decisions to do what God wanted instead of what I wanted. And I thought myself as so heroic. Then one day the Lord graciously came to me and said, Son, you think the choice is between life on my terms and life on your terms? I said, yes, that's it, Lord. That's the choice I've got. He said, that's not the choice. The choice is between life and death. You know, Jesus came that we might have life. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have life to the full. I also want to read to you from Ephesians chapter 2. And it says this. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In order that in the coming age he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good, good works, which God prepared in advance for us. Let me just summarize again. Christ died for you because he loves you. And if he was prepared to die for you, he is committed to you. You can trust him. You can be sure of his steadfastness that he will bring you through even the hardest of occasions. And remember to love Christ for who he is because everything is wrapped up in him. It's not an addition. It is to have him. But also expect a cross. It's a little cross. But as we suffer, whether it be for long occasion or brief occasion, remember it will come to an end. And just as it resulted in glory for Jesus, it will result in glory for you as well. He is with you in it. And remember, he's so worth it. He gave his all for you because he thought you were worth it. Will you do the same for him? Let's stand. I think the, the band is... Uh, uh, Andy is going to come up. But, you know, as I said earlier in the service, maybe you've been sitting on the fence a wee bit or you've been coming to a point where you know you need to decide am I for Christ or am I not for Christ I want to give you an opportunity this morning to decide 
Now, I don't want to put any sense of pressure on you, but sometimes the Holy Spirit causes an intentional uh, pressure. If he's speaking to you, as it says in Scripture, listen to his voice. And uh, if you're here this morning and you think, you know what, I've heard enough now. I'm on the side of the saints. <laughs> I want to make a commitment. Can I just ask you to put your hand up? I'm not conscious that anyone else. Well, I'm going to pray. Will you join me in prayer?